welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 68 for February 2017. I am your co-host, the first, Quinn Dunkey. With me as always is co-host, the second, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? Doing all right, Quinn. How are you? Good, good. Second time was the charm on that opening. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a little bit since uh, we've recorded, but um, and you've been busy dealing with rain and fun stuff like that, and I've had hard drive failures and all sorts of stuff going on here, so I think they can forgive us. Hard drive failures, yikes. That doesn't sound good. Well, I have a uh, an iMac that has this uh, three terabyte Fusion drive in it, and uh, I went to bed on a Friday night, and I had like mm, terabyte and a half free, and I woke up on... Uh, Saturday morning, and it was completely filled. Zero bytes available. And uh, hmm. the thing, I, I don't know if any, any of you Mac owners out there have ever filled up your hard drive, you know how badly Mac OS reacts to that in that yes. it stops booting and you no longer have access to it. So um, yeah. I ended up having to wipe everything and start over. Um, I think pretty much all the important stuff was backed up and I've reinstalled all the apps and things like that. Right now, it's all about like, you know, getting the settings right for recording things like podcasts. So hopefully the, the sound at my end will be okay. But um, yeah, other than that, it's, it's been kind of quiet here. Yeah, it's the little stuff that you don't remember uh, when you re- re- reboot or re- reinstall a whole machine. You know, it's like, oh, that little command line utility that I installed five years ago that I've been relying on. Now I don't know where to get it anymore. It's little things like right, that. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> yeah, you can't remember its you. name. and Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you forget all the little configuring of things that you've done over the years. Yeah, it was surprisingly frustrating because, you know, you, you can boot to recovery mode or a, a single user mode, which gives you the command line at least, and it would not let me in. You could see the files, and I think that was sort of a red herring because I couldn't actually do anything with them. It wouldn't it wouldn't let me mount the uh, file system as um, writable, so I couldn't copy anything, but... Um, eventually I just decided, ah, the heck with it, it's quicker just to rebuild. So here we are. Yeah, it's crazy. Modern operating systems do not react well to being out of disk space at no, all. That's, no, 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 uh, no. That is not something that anyone ever tests is what's <laughs> going to happen to this system if there are zero bytes remaining. Uh-uh. Uh, unlike uh, our Apple IIs, which uh, responded quite well to that because it was a very common occurrence. Right. You just put a new <laughs> floppy in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of Apple IIs, should we uh, talk about some of them, since this is kind of why we're here? Oh, sure. Hit the music. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II news. Uh, So we've got a lot of news to talk about this month, so uh, we're going to forego our usual guest spot and uh, spare you all Mike and I's attempts to sound interesting to someone more interesting than us. Uh, and uh, jump right into the news. No one likes us. <laughs> they. It's not that they don't like us, Mike. It's that we're not interesting. Those oh, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's like it's like your dad always said. It's not that I'm not listening to you. It's that I don't care. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, first up, uh, so some of these items are a little bit, uh, a little bit dusty cause uh, it's been a while since we did any news, but, uh, this is, uh, the, uh, gingerbread Apple II that, uh, some of you may have seen go around. It's, uh, 
a sort of uh, holiday themed, even though it's February. It was holiday back when we took these notes. And uh, a, uh, this looks like a father and son team uh, made an apple II out of gingerbread. And it's quite an excellent rendition, I have to say. It's uh, reasonably to scale. And they made the keyboard out of like... Uh, like Purdy's little square chocolates. And, uh, you know, as someone who's uh, made a gingerbread house from scratch, I can attest it is a difficult medium, architecturally speaking. So uh, this is an excellent rendition, I have to say. Yeah, you sort of realize why they don't build buildings out of these out of this uh, gingerbread stuff. Um, yep. It's really cool because it's not just the external case. I mean, the, the lid actually comes off and they've built a, a motherboard inside and there's a uh, with the, the disc controller card and there's a disc drive next to it. And they even made a, a floppy drive out of, mm-hmm. or a floppy disc out of the, um, um, gingerbread. Although I don't think the drive door opens, but it looks like you can, if, if you're daring, you can go ahead and insert that, uh, floppy that they made into a real disc two drive. Yes, that would, uh, that's the head dirtying disc. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that was less popular than the head cleaning discs back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to test to see whether your head cleaning kit is effective, you use this first. Oh, yeah. There you go. There's a use case for it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, there's some good pictures there. Uh, So I recommend taking a look. Uh, So next up is uh, something that we've talked about recently on the show, and uh, the uh, Apple II-verse was... Uh, a Twitter and a Buzz and a Facebook all about it, uh, which was the 8-bit Doe Bluetooth controller, which had an Apple II theme and had a dongle, which was Bluetooth and Apple II compatible. So in theory, you get a Bluetooth controller uh, for your Apple II and also potentially Bluetooth other things for your Apple II because it was sort of a generic game port Bluetooth dongle. Uh, all very exciting potential, um, as you may have seen now from multiple sources, including uh, Chris Torrance, and here I'm going to link to a thread on Facebook about it, uh, but another user who received this thing. Uh, it's a little bit disappointing. Uh, it turns out that the analog stick uh, is actually implemented uh, digitally, which, you know, as an Apple II gamer, you know that's a cardinal sin. Uh, yeah, Apple II joysticks are, of course, analog, and the vast majority of games expect analog input. So some games like uh, Load Runner are still playable with it, but uh, basically what this thing is doing is uh, just faking three digital values for the analog stick. So 0, 80, and 255 for three positions, essentially. So, uh, which seems like a, a disappointing oversight, considering they have analog sticks on this thing, and uh, they could have uh, done it properly with probably not much additional effort. So that's a bit of a, bit of a letdown, I think. Yep, um, disappointing, but, and, and I don't think, I mean, this is obviously not something that can be fixed with a firmware update or, or the latest version of whatever software driver you have, And uh, but it looks nice. It does. It looks very nice. Yeah. And, you know, it's possible this might be patchable. I don't know if the really? firmware on this thing is updatable. I honestly don't know. But, uh, I mean, it's a microcontroller and that thing, I'm sure, doing all the work. So maybe they can fix it. But it's it's not clear if the firmware on this thing is field updatable or not. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I would definitely save your money. It's it's a shame uh, for all the effort they put into production values and everything on this thing. Yeah, I um, I was uh, all looking for one of the things that I was looking forward to, uh, especially was the the wireless connection. Um, you know, we've got all of these great the CFFA three thousand and the the uh, you know SD floppy disks, um, the, the the wireless one, the Unisdisc Air. That's it. And uh, um, I think that's the only wireless option right now for for connection to your Apple II. So I was hoping that they would do, that, that this would lead to something else. There was a, a while back, there was this thing called the iDisc for the Apple II, which 
use Bluetooth to transfer uh, files back and forth um, to your um, floppy, your emulated floppy card. And uh, it, that part of it worked, but the interface was horrendous and I don't think it sold that well. So, um, but that seems like an area where we're kind of lacking and it would have been great to see somebody build on, on that. But I don't know if, if they're, if they're putting out something that's not really working from the start, uh, that seems like a kind of a non-starter. Yeah, yeah, it is for for as nice a device as it seems to be in every other way. It's a shame that it fell over on the the just the very basics of functionality. <laughs> but uh, you know, I guess I mean it is still a modern gamepad for your you know PC or whatever. So if you want to use it to play games with you know and have that Apple II feel in your hand or whatever, you certainly can still do that. And it's possible the device still has potential for hackers. You know, that Bluetooth dongle for the game port is pretty interesting. I'd like to get my hands on that and play with it for a while. But uh, yeah, uh, so far, I would uh, say uh, probably save your money. Yep. All right, uh, moving right along, we've got uh, an article here on Hackaday for somebody who has, as their uh, thesis in school, has uh, emulated an Apple II on an AVR microcontroller. So... Uh, he's basically created a small Apple II on a circuit board with a little keyboard and a little screen. And uh, it's uh, sort of simulating now an AVR is sort of roughly equivalent to uh, an early 8-bit computer in terms of horsepower. So this is sort of like emulating an Apple II on a, like a TRS-80, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so it's definitely a very limited Apple II, but, uh, you know, it's like 12K of memory and no, you know, no language card or anything like that. But uh, it's uh, surprisingly well done for, for the resources that he had to work with. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I recommend it. It's a good read. And, uh, you know, as I say, he did his sort of research paper on what it's like to emulate a 6502-based uh, microcomputer on, on an AVR. Uh, so I, I recommend a look. Yeah, and the hardware build is pretty nice, too. It's built on Vero board. It has a built-in display, keyboard, like you said, and a small speaker and uh, the micro SD card for uh, data. And um, there's a nice uh, video that you can watch on uh, that, or that's linked to on Hackaday, and we'll have that in the show notes. For sure. Uh, let's see. A little while back, we talked about uh, a fellow who had done a version of the Kerbal Space Program for Apple II, and uh, it was written basic and uh, surprisingly playable. Uh, and well, he's back <laughs> this time. Uh, he's done it again. Uh, this time with Portal, and uh, you know, one of the uh, the darlings of the video game world uh, of the past few years. Uh, I think you have to have been living in a cave not to know uh, Portal if you're into gaming at all. Um, and uh, this is, a, once again, uh, written in basic and a very charming, uh, relatively playable kind of little game. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good, uh, good look. Now, we're talking about the um, uh, Valve portal, right? Not the original Apple II version of Portal. Yes, I guess with this crowd, you have to clarify. Yeah, <laughs> this is our audience is probably the only group in the world <laughs> that would get confused by that statement. Yep. Uh, yes, Portal, the... Uh, uh, famous uh, student project that was called Narbuncular Drop, uh, mm -hmm. very unfortunately named, uh, <laughs> which uh, Valve folks discovered and turned into a real product with absolutely amazing visual style and personality and production values uh, and spawned subsequent sequels and so on. But uh, yeah, the original portal stands as a real high point in uh, PC gaming. And uh, uh, yeah, so this <laughs> Apple II version is a very charming uh, rendition of it, I think. Yeah, and he even included the uh, Apple II version of the um, of the song. Oh, I even missed that part. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yes, the infamous uh, Cake is a Lie song. That's right. 
Excellent. Well, well done, dude. And he did his same signature video involving various Back to the Future references and so on. Uh, so, yeah, this this guy is clearly our people. Yep. We like him. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I think a couple of months ago, we were talking about uh, printers and... Mm-hmm. Uh, the subject of the ImageWriter 2 uh, color uh, printer ribbons came up. I think we were talking to Kate, uh, Scott and Nikki about I that. Right and now. yeah, and we were uh, sort of bemoaning how great the ImageWriter 2 was with the color ribbon back in the day. It really did produce amazing images, uh, if you didn't mind. As long as you didn't do the math on how much that image was costing you uh, in ink to print. Uh, because, of course, the ImageWriter 2 ribbon has the four colors all in parallel. So, and the ribbon only goes one direction. So, whatever color it's printing at the time, you lose the other three colors forever on that same section of ribbon. Mm. So, uh, it's an expensive uh, proposition to print uh, in full color with this thing. But, uh, it was amazing uh, output-wise. And uh, so we were saying how it's a shame that, uh, you know, those ribbons, if they still exist, are all dried up and you could never recreate that experience. Well, that was all lies. Uh, <laughs> turn, turns out that a uh, very, very enterprising and industrious Apple II community member has been remanufacturing Emigrator uh, 2 color ribbons. And this has apparently been happening for a while. We just didn't know about it. So, uh, correcting that wrong here today, we will link to this thread on Facebook about this topic, and he's doing another run of them. Uh, by the time this airs, I don't know if there's still going to be any left, but uh, it, uh, I'm sure that he hopefully will do another run. If, you know, if he runs out, then there's obviously demand, so uh, he'll do hopefully another run. So if you want to get your hands on an ImageWriter 2 color ribbon, you may still have a chance. Cool. Yeah, I'm very excited by this. He's got some samples, uh, pictures. It's worth going to the thread just to see the pictures. If you've forgotten how good, actually, the Color ImageWriter 2 really was, uh, it's worth looking at the pictures just for that. I can't wait to fire up Print Shop and make some banners. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I uh, late, very late in my Apple II career, I acquired a secondhand ImageWriter 2, and I was very excited to be able to print in color. And uh, I did it a few times, but uh, yeah, gosh, the ribbons were so expensive and they w- w- wore out so quickly. Yeah, they did. <laughs> that, uh, you, you sort of quickly learn to save it for very special occasions. So it's sort of like that bottle of wine that has some special <laughs> significance and you can't bring yourself to drink it because no occasion is ever quite special enough. Right. So you just it sits on your shelf for 20 years. That was I had an ImageWriter 2 color ribbon and that's what I did with it. It sat on my shelf probably until it dried out because I was scared to use it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it is, it is impressive. So glad to see that happening. Yeah. Uh, so Mike, this next one is yours. Uh, help me out here. Virtual Apple II, everyone's favorite web emulator has been updated. Actually, this is the other virtual two. This is the, uh, application that you can download is written by Gerard Putter and it's been updated to version 7.5.4 and where's the, ah, I see. Yeah. Virtual two. Okay. Yes. Everyone's favorite Mac emulator. Yeah, it uh, it's it's it can be very confusing, but uh, we'll, and we'll have a link in the show notes. But uh, just a couple of uh, new things that Gerard has included in um, a new option allowing forwarding all command key combinations to the virtual machine as open Apple key combinations instead of being handled by the emulator. Uh, fixed a bug that would cause the application not to recognize the appropriate ROM file and remove the full screen uh, mode feature. So. Cool. If, you, if you haven't updated by now, it, it's out there and you can go get that. Yeah, I mean, any chance we get to plug Virtual 2, I'll take it. It's a great program. I am a, a proud owner of the full-paid version, and mm-hmm. uh, it's worth every penny. And it's amazing that he continues to maintain and update it after all these years. I mean, it's not it's, it's not a new piece of software. So uh, 
And as we all know, keeping up with uh, macOS is a full-time job if you want to keep your software running. So uh, good, good for him. Uh, let's see. This next item is also yours, Mike. Looks like uh, celebrity and uh, noted douchebag Adam Carolla uh, <laughs> bought a Porsche. Yeah. So a while back, we talked about um, the, the diecast uh, Apple TrueScale Porsche uh, that you could buy for a couple hundred bucks. It's the 118th scale. It's all uh, decked out in the beautiful Apple original you know, Apple logo and the rainbow color livery. Um, and that, of course, is based on a, a real Porsche, uh, which started its life, I guess, is, uh, in like Hawaiian Tropic, I think was, was the first livery. And then it raced in the 1980 season as, as the Apple car and then became Red Roof Inn, Coca Cola, and a bunch of other things. Well, that Porsche has been purchased by Adam Carolla. He paid $4 million for it. I guess he's a big Paul Newman racing fan. And Newman drove it as the Hawaiian Tropic car in the 1979 season. So Adam has it and he's going to be driving it. It'll be, and it won't be looking like the Apple one, but if you want to see it in action, I guess listen to his podcast if you can stand it. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, it's nice to know what, uh, what came of, became of that car. Yep. And uh, I would not recommend anyone listen to his podcast. <laughs> no. <laughs> Unless you want to get uh, very, very angry. Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, moving on to more pleasant topics. Everyone's favorite game when they were five, uh, Lemonade Stand, uh, is back in a very uh, sort of postmodern form. Uh, this is this is quite a neat one, Mike. Uh, tell us about this. So it's been uh, rewritten uh, as a chatbot, and you can play it, uh, play with it through your uh, Facebook Messenger program. I, I've not used a lot of bots. To, uh, can you ex- explain to me how this works? Yeah, this is a thing people are doing uh, where they take chatbot uh, or chat uh, systems like Facebook Messenger or even Twitter or similar types of things, anything that has a, a chatbot API, and people are implementing uh, games in this format, especially text-based games, obviously. So, you know, people have done a bunch of Infocom games like this uh, and other text adventures. Uh, this is the first time I've seen something like this done, though. So doing this with Lemonade Stand, so I guess it foregoes the graphics, which, of course, was a big part of the charm of that game, showing you the weather as a sun or a little rain cloud or whatever. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, you can at least play the game uh, with the text. Uh, as far as I know, there's no images, but uh, I don't know. Maybe they have some way of doing that. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's again, pretty pretty charming and amusing. Lemonade Stand was pretty ubiquitous back uh, back in the day if you had an Apple II because I, I think that it it shipped on, you know, one of the demo discs that came with every single Apple II. And before that, you could get it on cassette for your uh, original Apple II if you, if you were around even earlier. But um, so I, I don't know anyone who had an Apple II back then that would not recognize uh, this, this game. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to even imagine. Uh, I mean, it's such a canonical Apple II piece of software. And I mean, I can't even count the number of copies of it that I had lying around. It was one of those file-based games that just was everywhere. You had, it showed up on every floppy for some reason. Yep. <laughs> uh, but very, very cute low-res graphics. I was like, yes. like, I was like the graphics in that game. Uh, well, speaking of old software, uh, GBBS Pro, we were talking about that recently. And this is kind of big news. Uh, looks like it's GPL now. Is it official? Yeah, I know that um, Tony Diaz, who who was on the show uh, a while back, he he was working with Kevin Smallwood. Kevin, you know, th- this is one of those software, I guess, cautionary horror tales, if you want to call it that, that where you know the original maker of it 
went out of business. Somebody bought the rights, gave it to somebody else, passed it on to somebody else, and it ended up with Kevin. I know that uh, Kevin Smallwood was going to um, – I know he had plans. I don't know if it was he was going to rewrite some stuff or update it, but basically it became unavailable uh, to buy. But he was kind of out there, and you know, if you posted it, he would ask you to take it down. So – um, there was some efforts to either get him to, uh, release it to the public domain or do what he did, which is, uh, GPL it. So he still owns the copyright, but now you can download and, and use this software. And it's sort of interesting how he did people, some people got over this because to me anyway, you know, modems and especially GB or BBS software is one of the, few items for the Apple II or retro computing that doesn't seem to have a lot of use in the modern world. Um, you know, if you get a, if you go buy a modem, you can't really call anyone with it other than <laughs> this board to log in and go, gee, I was here. I don't know of any BBSs that, you know, the, the retro ones that are set up through Telnet, I guess you could do it that way. But do you really get a lot of traffic? I don't know. Yeah, that's what's interesting to me about this story, too, is that I can kind of understand people clinging to IP for old games or things that might, you know, live again as mobile games or retro, you know, pack-ins or something. But Mm -hmm. yeah, BBS software is sort of uniquely useless (laughs) in this day and age. And it's it's the one piece of software I can think of that just basically has no way of ever coming back. You know, it, it relied on this entire infrastructure of, you know, this sort of section of civilization that's forever gone. So... Uh, yeah, short of creating really artificial environments like the Telnet things or people have done, you know, uh, phone line simulator setups at, tri- at conferences and things. But, you know, those types of things are very, you know, temporary and sort of very gimmicky and niche. But um, yeah, no, I mean, the Telnet BBS, as we've talked about before, it's neat that people are doing that. But, you know, you go in there, you get a dozen people that go in once and go, oh, neat. Uh, I remember these and then leave. So... Yeah, I don't know. It's it does seem like there must be an emotional component there for someone to cling to uh, a copyright, uh, which with such ferocity. But uh, you know, I guess if you pay good money for it, then you know, to, to each their own. Yeah, I suppose. All right, what's next? Uh, next up, we've got a gentleman by the name of Wade Clark who cites uh, Antoine Vigneault for inspiring him to save his childhood legacy. <laughs> this is something that uh, I myself recently uh, embarked upon when I recovered all of my floppy disks from my parents' basement mm. and uh, yeah, proceeded to try and image them. And uh, I've had a blog post about that a while back. Uh, I can link to that, but we probably talked about it at the time. Yep. Um, and, uh, so, uh, Wade here has done the same thing. Uh, he's calling it the bus files and, uh, it's sort of a collection of some games that he worked on both for the Apple II and two GS. And there's some music stuff in there. Uh, and yeah, kind of a little variety of things. Uh, so it, it's, it's neat stuff. I, I don't know if any of these games are complete or what the status of them is, but, uh, I have to say some of them actually look uh, pretty darn good. Uh, it's always humbling when you post your own childhood experiments to see someone else's uh, <laughs> how much better they are. Uh, this, this stuff's all a lot better than anything I ever made. Yeah, yeah, certainly better than anything I wrote. Uh, but congratulations, Wade, for, for doing this. Of course, it's called The Bus Files because uh, Antoine's um, uh, metaphor was that you need to release this stuff before you on the internet before you get hit by a bus. Ah, that's good. I like that. That's a good uh, good metaphor, bus files. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in uh, in the software industry, we have an expression, uh, each employee has a bus factor, which is uh, how screwed the company would be if that person gets hit by a bus. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's considered good team practice to reduce your own bus factor by documenting things that you know and sharing knowledge and so on. 
Yeah, so that's that's a nice expression. Uh, all right, moving right along. Um, uh, Michael, Michael, I always forget how to pronounce his last name. I'm sorry, Michael. Is it Mahone? My, my, Michael Mann? Um, yes, <laughs> I, <laughs> okay. I forget too. I I don't think he I don't think he cares either way. But Michael, let us <laughs> know right. just because we like to get it right. So yes. So apologies in advance. Well, not in advance. Uh, apologies, Michael, for once again butchering your name. Uh, he is, of course, a Kansas Fest regular and lovable scamp of the Apple II community, and has lately been working on a Bros Two Twenty uh, simulator for the Apple II, which uh, <laughs> I love. Uh, I think, as I said before in the show, I love that someone is. Uh, uh, simulating a very old computer on a slightly less very old computer. So he's updated it, and uh, the uh, latest addition is you can now map uh, ex- like uh, peripherals from of the 220 to Protoss uh, files. So that'll allow you to do some neat things, I guess, with simulating the devices that one might attach to a Burroughs 220. Yeah, it looked like you could do it before, but it was a, a difficult manual process. It took a lot of steps. And then now that this uh, mapping has been fixed, it's way, way easier. So go do this now. <laughs> yeah. We'll link to the uh, Comsys Apple II thread on this, but uh, it's worth reading just for the opening uh, where he says, for those of, for the thousands of you who've been looking for an easier way to simulate the Burroughs 220 on your Apple II, <laughs> have I got the update <laughs> for you? Uh, bravo. All right. Uh Next up, we have some news from Down Under, uh, is the obligatory way to say that. Uh, WazFest is back. Uh, what's going on here, Mike? Yeah, uh, and we'll be sure to get all the details wrong so you guys can uh, correct us. Uh, WazFest PR number six uh, has been announced uh, for Saturday, April 29th, 2017. Starts around midday Sydney time. And the theme of this will be preservation with a special in- emphasis on grassroots preservation uh, efforts. So if you're in that area of the world and you're an Apple II fan, you can get there. Well, you should. Nice. And the last WazFest was five and a quarter, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, which I'm sure we are, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if uh, if that's the case, then I, I look forward to uh, seeing how they continue this trend of uh, clever Apple II <laughs> number puns. Yep. Slot seven or something. <laughs> yeah. Seven. They, I guess they can do the seven thing again. Eight now. Maybe it'll be eight bit. Uh, I don't know. We'll see how long they can keep doing this. That's right. <laughs> oh, we got to cancel it. We ran out of puns. <laughs> Okay, so uh, speaking of Kansas Fest regulars, uh, Sheppy of Sweet 16 fame has got an update for us. Uh, what's the story here, Mike? Yeah, so Sheppy just wrote, uh, he posted to Compsys Apple II and I'm sure to other places uh, to let us know that um, Sweet 16 is not in fact dead. It's been a while since he's uh, done any releases or updates on that, uh, but he is continuing to work on it. So um, I think... Um, I think he just wanted to let us know, and we appreciate that because Sweet Sixteen, I think, is pretty much the the best, if if not only currently um, supported. Uh, bleh, brain just went dead. Currently supported Apple Two GS emulator on the Mac. Is that right? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, there's uh, there's a plethora of Two GS emulators, and I have trouble keeping them all straight, to be yeah. honest, because uh, there's GS port. Or the oh, yeah. uh, or G Sport, as people like to say, uh, and then there's uh, Dig and Brock's fork of that, which I think he's calling GS Plus or something along those lines, because I guess the f- the thing that he based it on was kind of unmaintained and had some issues. So there's a story there. I don't know all the details, but uh, yeah, I'm honestly not sure what the state of emulation is uh, on the two major modern platforms. Well, my apologies will be forthcoming. I'm sure. Just write in and let me know which ones I've forgotten. <laughs> 
Yes. I mean, of course, there's kegs and Bernie the Rescue and everything that a lot of these are ultimately based on. But uh, uh, yeah, 2GS emulation is a complicated subject. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we we will get email. <laughs> well, thank you, Sheppy, for letting us know. Um, I, I, for one, enjoy and use Sweet 16 on a regular basis. For sure. Yeah, it would certainly be my go-to if I uh, was in need of 2GS emulation, I think. Uh, all right. So this next story is kind of uh, inspiring and kind of sad. Uh, so there's a teenager, which I find already the story is interesting, a teenager with an obsession with uh, very old Apple II gear or Apple gear in general. And uh, so he's managed to build a very impressive collection of old Apple gear and has been planning to uh, set up a museum. Uh, but he ran out of, or he couldn't get funding, I guess. And so then he's selling everything. I'm a little bit where I get confused, Mike. Help me out. All right. So I, I don't know if we've specifically talked about uh, Alex Jason on our podcast. I, I can't imagine that we wouldn't have, but then uh, there's a lot of things that surprise me about this podcast. Um, but I, I know it's been mentioned on all the other Apple-related, Apple-centric podcasts and blogs and Cult of Mac and things like that. And um, Alex Jason is a Maine teenager, and he um, he, he had used lawn mowing money uh, to to start the seeds of, of what turned out to be one of the biggest and most impressive collection of rare and Apple rare and historical Apple devices out there. Um, and, and including an Apple one and, and some other, you know, prototypes and things like that. He even got managed to get, um, you know, Mac, Apple two and Apple three case designer, Jerry Manick on, on the board of this museum that he wanted to start. Um, but it looks like uh, he was not able to raise enough money to, um, finish the renovations on the building that they wanted in Maine. And so what he's done instead is he sold his collection to Lonnie Mims, uh, a name you might recognize as uh, the man who owns, I guess like he's up to four Apple ones now. Um, <laughs> and he, uh, he was involved in starting the um, VCF uh, Southeast and with David Grealish and, and um, the museum down there that they've set up. Um, and he's got a, I guess, a huge collection as well. And he's bought these items and they're going to be part of, uh, Lonnie's, um, museum down there and, and they'll be rotated in and out of display. So while they won't be his, uh, Alex's anymore, they'll still be preserved and, uh, you know, part of the collection of history. And it, it looks like it didn't take Alex long to go out and start collecting again. He's already got a few. Um, a few collectible machines to re- <laughs> in his basement now to replace what he what he gave away or what he sold. Hmm. Yeah, that's where I got confused because he's setting up a museum with which which he will fill with his collection that he's built up. But then he sold the collection to pay for the museum. So yeah, is is Lonnie gonna exhibit what's now his stuff in this museum or? Well, I, I think the I think the um, the plan was they they had a building that they wanted to use in Maine. Uh, Alex wanted to use in Maine for his collection, uh, but it required significant uh, cash resources to get it up to code and set up and all that. And he didn't have that. And Alex's dream was to build this this museum. And when it became clear that that wasn't going to happen because they didn't have the cash uh, to renovate that building. They wanted these things to still be displayed, and Lonnie stepped in, made an offer, and, and they accepted that. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and so they will be part of the commu- Computer Museum of America in Roswell, Georgia, where Lonnie lives. Okay, well, good for him for finding a way anyway. Yeah. Sticking it out. Interesting kid. 
All right, so uh, we've got another Apple II emulator project similar to the AVR that we just talked about. Uh, this one is sadly entirely devoid of details, but uh, it does look very interesting. I wish the person who built it had done some sort of a write-up on it. So this person has uh, built an emulated Apple II out of a chip computer. That's an acronym, CHIP. Uh, these things are a bit like an Arduino or, you know, a Raspberry Pi, one of those types of uh, hobbyist boards. They are uh, intended for like indie game developers. It's like a game, it's like a handheld indie game development platform that hasn't really caught on yet, but hopefully it will. Uh, you know, I know that uh, like Earl Evans has talked about it on his podcasts and so on. It's, it's, it's a very neat looking device if you want to make kind of Nintendo era style games. Uh, this might be an interesting platform for it because it's got a nice little GPU in it dedicated to the purpose and so on. Uh, so it's a neat little device and it's very inexpensive. Uh, so this person has emulated an Apple II on it and it looks really great. Uh, it's actually running on a little three inch screen in what looks to me like one of Charles Mengen's uh, 3D printed enclosures. It's about that scale. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if he doesn't make any mention of retro connectors, so I don't know if he bought them from him or maybe just printed them from Charles's files on Shapeways. I'm not sure, but it's clearly a 3D printed case uh, at about the same scale as I believe Charles's are. So uh, in any case, it's a neat looking thing with uh, some nice pictures and no information about it whatsoever. So uh, do with that as you will. <laughs> Does Eric Estrada come and install it for you? <laughs> yeah, maybe. No. Yeah, uh, that's a terrible joke, Mike. Okay, <laughs> I'll I'll do the jokes. All right, <sighs> you're, right. you're right. That's Thank right. You. You're here for the size. I'm here. For, right. I'm here for the laughs. I just I, I need I need to know my limitations. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Grown. Okay, moving right along. Uh, Put that behind us. Yeah, let's just uh, just pretend it never happened. This next item. It is probably my first encounter with the word transputer. And <laughs> so this is... So Outside of a sci-fi novel, you mean? <laughs> yeah. So there's the article itself, which we will link to in the show notes. And then there's a reference to an older article about the same subject from six years ago on A2 Central, which we will also link to. And... All of these sources, including the fellow's blog, uh, none of them really explain what a transputer is, <laughs> but this is one for the Apple II. So it's a very nice looking card. He built a prototype six years ago. He finally finished them and uh, is offering them for sale now. He's made a uh, first run of uh, 20. Very nice looking boards. I think what it is is like a ability. It gives you a way to use an external machine as kind of a co-processor for your Apple II, is my understanding. Um, so... The, apparently the canonical demo of this is computing Mandelbrot sets. So you plug in like a more powerful computer to your current computer uh, and it can like offload processing to it. Um, that's my understanding from glossing or skimming over all these articles. I have no idea if that's correct. So, huh. Well, if it does that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I have no idea what you would do with this thing. Um, it's a very nice looking board. Um, so neat. Uh, <laughs> if you have a spare slot and want to maybe somehow compute some Mandelbrot sets, uh, I would encourage you to, to, to do so. Uh, maybe, you know, speed up your compiling or something. Maybe, yeah, yeah. If somebody knows exactly what the use case is for this thing, uh, and what it actually is, please write in and tell us because uh, we're interested. All right. Uh, let's see. We talked about Lemonade Stand recently. Another uh, very charming educational game uh, with low-res graphics was one called Three Mile Island. 
And uh, so we have here an article on Hackaday where somebody who had uh, very fond memories of this game uh, decided to dig it up and play it again. But more than that, apparently the original game had an unfortunate bug in it. And so he decided he was going to fix that bug. And so this is kind of a blog of his adventures in learning how to reverse engineer 6502 code and... uh, go on to fix the bug. Apparently the bug was quite a nasty one where you, uh, the save game key would crash. Uh, so wow. okay. yeah, it's apparently quite a lengthy game uh, that required uh, saving and restoring if you didn't want to sit in front of the computer for hours on end. Uh, so yeah, apparently saving your game just crashed uh, and it drove him crazy his entire childhood. And uh, so he finally <laughs> decided to fix it. So good on user for fixing this 37 year old software bug. <laughs> Go play and save. Yeah, it's it's a good read, though. I recommend it. Uh, let's see. Looks like I'm Fed Up has been updated again. Everyone's favorite uh, disk preservation tool for creating EDD files. Uh, what does EDD stand for again, Mike? Do you remember? Uh, I think it's Essential Data Duplicator. Mm, right. Okay. It's that really high-res bit-level capture of floppy disks. Right? Yeah, it, co- it competed with uh, Locksmith and, and Copy2+. Mm, yeah, okay. You could feed it parameters for certain titles that existed out there and it would automatically copy them over. I think, I think the reason that, um, uh, one of the, one of the selling points that they tried to push off, uh, was, um, that because it, these parameters allowed EDD to retain the initial, the, the protection from copy to copy, mm-hmm. uh, that, that they weren't cracking the software and therefore <laughs> were not pirates and you could, you could go ahead and use this software without feeling bad. <laughs> Wow, that's a that's a thin uh, straw to hang, hang <laughs> no, your hopes oh, on. Yeah. But, okay, well, it's sort of uh, it's sort of back in the spotlight again these days because it's it's kind of the darling of people's hopes and dreams for preserving copy protected software. It seems to be our best shot at possibly, uh, you know, preserving these discs intact without having to necessarily crack them. Uh, of course, 4AM has been doing great work preserving the software by removing the copy protection, but it would also be nice to, you know preserve the copy protection itself uh, intact. So EDD might be our best shot at doing that. So lots of people are working on that, um, including, of course, Antoine Vigneault and Paul Hegstrom did a presentation on it at uh, KFest this year. And uh, I know John Brooks has been doing a lot of work on the 2GS side of things, uh, taking advantage of the speed of the 2GS to hopefully capture uh, more resolution in the bits uh, at uh, and in, in fewer numbers of passes. So uh, in fact, that's part of this release is uh, single pass copies on the 2GS. Uh, I'm not sure if John was involved in that, but uh, possibly so. And it exports FDI files, which is maybe exciting, but uh, it doesn't mean anything to me. I'm afraid my knowledge of this uh, area is very little. Yeah, so I think FDI is is the, the extension for the, the EDD file format. Um, it, it's interesting that the company that made EDD, uh, Utilico Microware, you know, that's a mouthful right there, but um, they they took their efforts a step further than than the locksmith creators or Copy2 Plus in that they also created a, a hardware uh, disk controller system that you could buy and put in your Apple II, which would make it, which the idea, I guess, was for those really tough titles out there. Uh, this could, this piece of hardware could sort of sit between, you know, the drive and the computer and intercept the, the data as it went back and forth. Um, and I don't know how many of those sold at the time. Um, but I, I think Henry and, and Anthony of, um, Ultimate Apple II, uh, made some clones. I don't know if those are still available, but if you have one of those, uh, FedUp will work with that as well and, and take advantage of, of the extra features that are in, in the hardware on that card. 
Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's my understanding is that there are limits to how much of a, of a disc, how high resolution of a disc image you can get from just using the standard hardware because, you know, you're limited by the interpretation that the disc two controller is doing. So the uh, EDD card sits between the actual floppy drive and the disc controller. And so it's able to capture uh, properties of the disc image that, uh, that that you can't any other way. Uh, so it allows them to capture some tricks with timing bits and some other, other details um, that you otherwise have no way of capturing, especially with copy protected discs that relied on a lot of the, you know, odd behavior of the disc two in certain edge cases and so on. So uh, yeah, uh, I think the Holy Grail right now is an emulator that will use EDD disc images. Uh, that's one of the problems with them right now is that there's kind of no way to know if, if they're working <laughs> because yeah. you can image a disc and then you just you just have this really high res image of, of a floppy disk, but you don't really know if it works or if it's an actually a good capture. So uh, I think there's some efforts in that direction just starting, but uh, maybe someday. Yeah. Yeah, Paul, Paul Hagstrom has done a lot of work in, in that and we'll have a, a link to his uh, webpage on that in the show notes. All right. Um, well, speaking of Tony Diaz, uh, he's also our next news item. He did a nice post on A2 Central about uh, the recent Fufura with the uh, file aux type uh, extension bug in GSOS 603, the recent community release of that. So, um, yeah, he talks all about that bug and the nature of it and how it happened and uh, what's been done about it and so on. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, making operating systems is hard and, uh, these bugs <laughs> certainly are going to happen. So, uh, it's nice to see that, uh, it's been corrected. Yeah. It's very cool that, that Tony, uh, went out of his way to, to write this article as well, because, um, you know, obviously the bug, uh, could have been and, and was fixed and, and released. Um, and, but it could have just been, Hey, we fixed it. Here it is. And, and never had really an explanation of what was going on behind the scenes, um, you know, I know that uh, John Brooks is very busy with what he does, and and you know, if he say he didn't have time to do a, a big write up like this, and maybe we would never have known. I know that, you know, the uh, uh, the FSTs, the file system translators on on the two GS are sort of this black box of mystery and magic and wonder <laughs> to this day. So to have something even like this from Tony is really great, and we appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and we haven't heard a lot from Tony in the community lately, so it's just nice to yeah, see him pop up fun. again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, all right. Well, Mike, this next news item has your URL on it, so you better talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So I got an email from uh, listener Andrew Rowan the other day from uh, down under, down under that place. Um, and he had uh, he was pointing out that I, there was a link on a2central.com that was pointing to uh, Ryan Sunaga's Apple software collection um, that was now broken. Well, Ryan, of course, passed away a couple of years ago and, and left this collection, uh, this set of 2GS utilities are mostly NDAs and CDAs um, that had somehow fallen off the net. I mean, there was kind of a, you know, the half-baked broken version of the page on, on archive uh, that you get when there are a lot of scripts running in the background and that sort of thing. Um, and I managed to collect most of the software and put it up um, on my Apple2Scans.net. We'll have a link in the show notes. But the one thing that we are missing that no one, no one has at least forwarded on to me is something he wrote called Fish NDA, which uh, this is a little NDA on your 2GS. Very useful. It allows you to check whether or not Abe Vigoda is still alive. <laughs> so if you have that, uh, we'd love to have that. Okay. Wow. That's, yeah, that's critical software. <laughs> does it still work? Does it say no now? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, it does. Yeah, because <laughs> it checks the. Uh, I think it checks. Um, 
uh, his his wiki page. So as long as the formatting <laughs> of the wiki page hasn't changed too radically, then, then it should still work. Amazing. All right. I like that. Okay. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, gosh. Okay. Um, let's see. This next item is uh, about uh, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, it's a television show, yes, I believe is well regarded, or is this about the movie? Well, this is about the television show. Um, it's now in its, I think, fourth season. Um, and there was a scene in a recent episode. It's, you know, and this has been posted about on Facebook and, and, uh, on Twitter all over the place. But there's a scene where one of the agents uses, uh, a couple of Apple IIs to boot up a, a, a set of old servers that they had running in the background that the bad, bad guy didn't have access to. Hmm. Um, but it, it was kind of cool to see the, the, the shield logo rendered on an Apple II screen. Um, and it's funny, you can tell that the, the actor is young enough never to have used five and a quarter inch <laughs> floppy drives because he carefully slides it in with both hands. Uh, so a rook, and rookie they, mistake. Right. And there's some other weirdness about it because there's, the uh you know the the rainbow cables that come out of the the older versions of the apple uh, the the disc two floppy drives have been carefully folded back under them and allowed to lay across the keyboard so that you can get some <laughs> color or something i guess but um, <laughs> yeah kind of cool to to see that <laughs> that's funny uh, it's i like that they actually did the logo in in apple II high res that's pretty great yep and uh, if nothing else, it's proof that there's no Apple II reference in pop culture that is too small for us to talk about. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, uh, that's it for the news. Uh, let's uh, let's do a quick eBay segment before we get on to our next big one. Look, rare. Steve Jobs. Look what we found on eBay. So this is an item that, yeah, I'm glad you linked because I was going to and forgot. Uh, a 13 megahertz ultra warp accelerator. This is an unusual item. Yeah, I, I actually know nothing about it. It simply caught my eye because if it, if it works, your Apple II will now run at 13 megahertz. I don't know what you would do with that sort of speed. Uh, as of this uh, recording, there are two days and 17 hours left on the um, on the auction. It's up to $410. Quinn, do you know anything about this? No, I have never heard of this one. Uh, it's an 8-bit accelerator, uh, which, you know, those are uh, nowadays of probably z zero utility. Uh, back in the day, they would have been good, you know, for Apple Works or, or Geos or something if, you know, if they're compatible, which a lot of accelerators were not very compatible with things as uh, Laser128EX users discovered. But um, yeah, it's ne I've never heard of this one, but it, that is blindingly fast for, for an 8-bit for sure. So there's a, I just looked this up uh, over on Compass Apple II. There's a thread from 2013 about the Ultra Warp and the user who calls himself or herself Stinks. Um, the, you may recognize that name from uh, all the, the music that, that they did and released on SoundCloud, um, but has a post from 2013 saying that uh, they, they got their hands on, uh, hands on one of these and uh, had written uh, a preview. Um, he was testing it. Plays well with the RAM fast, but it, it looks like it does work. Uh, there, there's some. He's got some pictures up on, on Flickr of the thing in operation. So, uh, wow, cool. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, my guess is that it probably does some things just fine and doesn't work with everything. Uh, you know, that was my experience with the 
the fastest of the three accelerator modes on the Laser 12080X was that it would run about 30% of software. So, you know, like <laughs> AppleSoft Basic, your cursor would blink really fast and like ProDOS would run really fast and everything seemed cool and perfect. And then you would try to boot like AppleWorks or Geos or something and things would just lock up randomly and it just didn't, didn't work very well. Hmm. Looks like there were actually a number of versions of these. Um, I'm seeing uh, there was an auction on eBay.fr for an 8 megahertz version, and Stinks's version is actually 16 megahertz. So 16, wow. Huh. 16.667, yeah. Well, if there's hardcore collectors out there, this is certainly a unique item. I mean, I've never seen one of these before. Yeah, certainly outpaces even the 10 megahertz rocket chip and, of course, mm-hmm. the 8 megahertz zip chip. So yeah. Yeah, the rocket ship was cool. That's something I would like to have one day for, for just for the uh, cool factor of it. Uh, again, not especially useful in this day and age, but uh, uh, back in the day, a friend of mine had a rocket ship in his 2C, and I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Yep. Okay, well, uh, good thing we don't talk about eBay on this show, because that's <laughs> all the eBay items that we have. That's right. Uh, so we're going to bring back a segment that uh, we haven't done in a while, just because of our interview schedule. Uh, and this is and the- to annoy someone? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, this is the we'll get uh, to that in a minute. Yeah, the magazine flashback segment. We don't have a bumper for this, so we'll just pretend that a charming British lady said something about magazine flashback right here. <laughs> uh, all right, so we're doing uh, soft talk number three, volume one, number three, November nineteen eighty. Shall we begin, Mister McGinnis? Of course. So this starts out with. Um a dark cover um, with apples in utopia and sort of a funky 70s sci-fi font. And there's a musician uh, standing in kind of in the darkness and illuminated in pink and obviously wearing a very 80s suit <laughs> um, and playing a saxophone. And um, let's dive right in. The first thing we see is a an ad for an Axiom, Axiom um High, what is it? An impact printer, which yes. you can, which apparently works well for a high res and Pascal, and you can buy it for yourself for eight hundred and ninety five dollars. Yeah, I always until I read these old magazines, I forget how many like weird niche brands of printers there were. Like that was like <laughs> that seemed to be the one market where everyone thought I can start a company here. Like I can't make a computer or joysticks <laughs> or whatever, but I can make a printer and somehow get a foothold. And uh, this is this is one of those. Um, yeah, the. The, the copy, it's sort of strange. They, they talk about Apple compatibility, and it's an, in an Apple magazine, but they just talk about an Apple interface, and they don't really explain what that is, and they list it separately from Parallel and Serial. So I'm not sure what they mean by Apple interface exactly. But uh, yeah, anyway, it's, uh, they were certainly making a go of it. Uh, one of my new obsessions is uh, Googling the addresses in all these old uh, ads uh, and yeah. uh, just seeing like how legit these companies were. Uh, so this one uh, is, is in uh, Glendale and uh, it's actually uh, a small industrial space uh, opposite a power substation. So it appears that this was a real company. So they may have even been making these things on site because it looks like a small kind of manufacturing facility. So uh, yeah, this uh, this company was at least uh, definitely trying to make a real go of it. <laughs> for, huh. for what that's worth. Okay. Well, um, yeah, it was called the uh, Imp Two, I guess, for Impact Two, Apple Two, something like that. Very clever. Um, good luck, guys. I hope it sells well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The gotcha with these was always the drivers, right? Like uh, we mm-hmm. we got a an Epson clone of some sort, like an off brand Japanese Epson clone uh, for our Apple II, and it took us weeks to get it to work. I mean, we did finally get it to work, but I mean, there was two banks of dip switches and. 
like a list of like 50 drivers in print shop. And we basically tried every combination of all those things because there was no documentation and no explanation of what was going to work and what wasn't. And we found some random combination of dip switches and driver that worked. And then we just didn't touch it for like 10 years and it kept it working. (laughs) Uh, And any new program we got, we knew, okay, this, we have to call it the whatever print master 3000 or whatever, whichever driver we decided worked. Uh, So, and then we just, yeah, we just kept it that way. So yeah, don't lose that information. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was my first uh, kind of experience with trying to get a a product to work uh, in in that uh, era. Anyway. All right. Well, up next we have uh, the contest. Um, they've they've really ramped up on this um, uh, this this monthly contest that they're doing. Uh, this month is a an, an anagram hunt. I, I glanced over the rules here and didn't really. Um, it, it got really complicated. Yeah, it got very complicated. <laughs> there's again, there's so. a lot of math in this contest. I'm not sure. I, I honestly I read it twice and I still don't totally understand what I'm supposed to do. Uh, yeah, it looks like sort of the, the you know the cryptographic um, letter swap letter number swap thing, and and from that you're supposed to make an anagram, and there's a list of words that it's involved. Um, yeah, very headache inducing. <laughs> um, yeah. Then they <laughs> and then they go on to uh, there's a, there's a whole big article next on um, we got some contest winners here, and it talks about they they have pictures of of each contest winner from the previous I guess month. <laughs> um, being handed their prizes. Um, and so they were pretty serious about this. One of them is, uh, uh, like a Bert Delegata. He's 15 years old and from San Jose receiving his copy of computer ambush from the president of strategic simulations. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. And, and, um, you know, all the pictures are, of course, it looks like most of them are taken in some sort of Apple shop, uh, with the appropriate, uh, 80s hair and beard and <laughs> 70s shirts and stuff, yep. you know, because uh, computer geeks are a couple of years behind fashion-wise, <laughs> of course. Um, but, yeah, they, they really picked this up here and uh, good for them. Yeah, they, they were serious about these contests. They definitely, this, it looks like they had partnerships with companies and, and dealers and so on to, to get people free stuff for participating. So uh, what's funny to me is that right after this is a whole bunch of letters uh complaining about how they didn't have enough time to participate in the contest. So I guess uh, they were still getting all the timing kind of sorted out, like how much time should we give people to send in the answers to each contest. And it made me realize what a different time scale the world operates on now, because, you know, people were complaining because like two months wasn't enough time to, you know, participate in these contests. So I guess because, you know, the magazine takes two, three weeks to get to some people in certain parts of the country, and then, you know, a week or two to you know, to do the puzzle and then, you know, a week to get the letter back or whatever. And then magazines have a three month lead time. So, I mean, there's a lot of sort of delay baked into the eighties world that's hard to overcome. So you, you end up needing three or four months to, you know, let people participate in these contests. Yeah. With the, um, the glut of information and, and immediate, you know, news and, and, uh, even access to like everything that's ever been written for the Apple two, uh, right there at your fingertips on the internet. It, it's, easy to forget sometimes that, you know, when you got your nimble magazine or your soft talk in the mail, you had a good, you know, three or four weeks with just that because you weren't getting anything else until mm-hmm. the next cycle came around. So, yeah. uh, totally different these days, you know, like you know, you, me as an example, I just sort of skimmed over the rules of the, 
of the uh, contest and moved on because there's so much more to do. But um, yeah. at, the, at the time, you could actually, I guess, sit down and figure out what, they were, what the hell they were talking about because I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, this would be a, a web form or something that you would fill out and the whole contest would take eight seconds. But, right. uh, you know, in the, in the 80s magazine world, this contest took four months. And the rest would just be Reddit trolls telling you how much you suck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was a bit disappointed, again, not appreciating the timescales. I wanted to know the answer to the apples puzzle. Yeah. From, I was looking for that too. Yeah, yeah. From, was it episode issue one or two? Where Something they, like that. Mm -hmm. You had to count the instances of the word apple in the entire magazine. And I was dying to know the answer to that. <laughs> I mean, the number wouldn't mean anything. They could tell me it was 700 or they could tell me it was 12. And I'd be like, oh, neat. But I just wanted to know. Yeah, yeah. Come on, give it up. Let us know. So yeah, it doesn't seem like they're giving the answers to any of these contests. Maybe that'll mm -mm. get corrected later on. I hope so. So there's an ad here from Soft Tape. Um, apparently, you can you can take uh, you could take this coupon into a Soft Tape retail outlet. Did you, did you know there was a Soft Tape retail outlet? Never heard of it. Yeah, me either. Um, and get uh, get good for one product only. And uh, yeah, I, I'd forgotten that that. Tapes were, you know, things that you didn't have to buy through the mail back then. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I, I've never heard of this. I mean, t I guess tapes were not whenever that big in North America anyway for these things. But yeah, the disc drive came out pretty quickly after the the, the two was released. So yeah, yeah. Although all you got to do is go look at Antoine's tape collection to see how much actually was released on tape. Yes, that that list is very educational for us disc snobs who think that uh, <laughs> nobody used tapes. Uh, right. Think again. <laughs> Europe was using tapes, people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Muse has a an ad for SuperText Two, um, which is a word processing system. Not very interesting. Yeah, the, um, the ad is about as exciting as the word processor is. That's sure. right. <laughs> Next, we have uniforms by Apple. What is this? Uh, oh, wait. So you skipped over something. Uh, yeah. So there's uh, so there's uh, Margot's uh, editorial, of course, uh, the uh, keynote speaker from a recent Kansas Fest. Uh, next to that, there was an ad that uh, that caught my eye. So I wanted to talk about that. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's this ad for, for business software. And... It's very, uh, it, it's it's very representative of what I find so fascinating about these ads. Is in that, first of all, you know they're expecting people to buy this software based entirely on a small paragraph describing it. There's no screenshots. There's no, you know, list of features or or anything. It's just sort of describing. Oh, this is general ledger software, and this is accounts receivable software, and it will do your ledger. So the leap of faith that was required to buy this software is amazing to me. And on top of that, you can't tell anything about these companies from these ads. I mean, this, you know, this is full column ad with long descriptions of the software, but, and then at the bottom, it's some company called Small Business Computer Systems, and you've never heard of them, and are they legit? Who knows? So, uh, in, in keeping with my obsession, I Googled uh, this address, and it's a uh, house in suburban Lincoln, Nebraska. So oh, no. <laughs> this was literally some guy uh, just, just written this software. I bet you anything this software was written in BASIC. Uh, and for the complete package, he's charging $330,1980, uh, which I uh, took the liberty of looking up is uh, just over $1,000 today. So Whoa. so I, I'm dying to know if anybody sent him $1,000 for this software based on this description of it in this magazine. Uh this may be a tough one to to Google, other than because because the the name the name of the company one is so generic, small mm -hmm. business computer system, and yeah. the names of the software package, General Ledger, accounts receivable. I I don't know how <laughs> I don't know how you you would Google would identify that. I mean, yeah, I know they're they're pretty smart at Google, but 
there's only so much they can do. <laughs> yeah, honestly, yeah, everything about this is so generic. I think it would be impossible to track down this person or this software. But uh, uh, yeah, nowadays you'd have to call it business grinder with no vowels or something just to make it Googleable. But uh, grinder, you know, really, you know, it's make it dynamic and exciting. Sure, it's, it certainly would be exciting. <laughs> it would be. Hey, if there's a, if there's one thing that counts receivable needs, it's a little bit of excitement. Okay. <laughs> All right. So anyway, I found that fascinating. Uh, yeah. Thousand yeah, dollar mm-hmm. software. Some guy in Lincoln, Nebraska. And um, I, I guess you know if you're writing business software, you assume that uh, somebody who's looking for accounts receivable software is going to know what you need, and and I guess what assume that the software that you're buying is going to have those things because it calls itself general ledger. I don't, I don't know, but yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, is there support? Like if there's bugs in it, do, can I call someone and get patches or like, how does all that work? You know, well, there's yeah. a phone number, but it's probably, you know, <laughs> mom, get off the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> Talking to somebody here. I'm important. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Good times. And if uh, that's not the case and you actually wrote this in and are listening, I apologize. <laughs> yes. If, if, if someone, if this person is listening, I would love to talk to you because I'm Indeed, yeah. fascinated by this this type of early independent software development. Uh, all right, well, uh, moving right along. So yes, this next major article is called "Uniforms by Apple," and uh, it fits neatly into this genre that we've been talking about in these old magazines of uh, articles of sort of desperate to show what people are doing with these computers. <laughs> like, look, look, you can do stuff with them. So uh, they are useful. <laughs> yes. Uh, of course, these are this early, you know, your audience is going to be all early adopters and early adopters, of course, are desperate to rationalize their very expensive purchase. So uh, we'll see. That's not always the case later, but most of these are sort of the applications are glorified index card stacks uh, of some sort. But uh, Versions of VisiCalc. Yeah, yeah, uh, glorified agendas and notepads. Um, but, uh, you know, for three or four grand, I guess that's better than nothing. Mm. So uh, it's a fun little article. It's about four students at UCLA. Uh, opens with a uh, picture of a very intense young man uh, using his <laughs> Apple II. Uh, Mark Silverstein uh, apparently has created a, a custom software program, no doubt in BASIC, to organize the band uniforms, which uh, I did not know this, but marching band uniform management is actually very complicated. So, you know, bravo for that. Yep. Uh, and so he's kind of used his Apple to solve the problem, which is kind of neat. Um, the thing that stuck out for me, though, at the very back of this, they kind of buried the lead here, I think, because at the back of this, they mentioned that one of the uses of the Apple II that the band has is on their long bus rides, they cite a uh, 14-hour bus ride, uh, they brought along the Apple II, a portable television, and some sort of uh, battery power supply called an Apple Juice, which I've never heard of, oh, wow. and uh, used this to play Space Invaders, Asteroids, Tranquility Base, and Pong on the bus with their Apple Whoa. II. And I would pay $1,000 for a picture of that. So if someone <laughs> someone from the 1980 UCLA Bruins marching band has a picture of that Apple II <laughs> on that bus, uh, go ahead and get in contact with us because I want to wow. see that. That sounds amazing. I, I, I mean, did they put it on a seat? Did they did they bring a milk crate to put it on? Did, did they tie it down somehow? Like, I just, I have to know. This is fascinating to me. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that that's the best part of this article by far for me. There's an interesting ad here uh, on this page. Um, after you play the Temple of Apshay, you can play Sticks and Stones for free. I don't know 
this is a apparently a, a board game that you can that you can get from is, is this actually from yeah it's from well from automated simulations and so after you get done playing um the the the, the hook here is that after you play you know 200 rooms of catacombs and and untold treasures and and eluding beasts and this and that you can you can relax and uh when you order temple of apche you get the sticks and stones board game uh for free um and if you're not satisfied with Temple of Apsha, you can keep sticks and stones. That's how much they thought of this. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Now there were, you know, there are a number of like Load Runner. There was a board game version of that. I don't know if sticks and stones is a version, like a board game version of Temple of Apsha, or if it's just they found a box of these in the back of a, a warehouse and wanted to get rid of them. So this is what they're doing. I don't know. Yeah, it's not clear from from this ad. I I mean, I'm an avid board gamer, both of both current and uh, old fashioned style board games, but I've never heard of this one. So it's possible that this is uh, a product of the same company. Some of these early game makers, you know, got started as uh, board or card game makers. So maybe this is their product as well. And so they are just kind of getting rid of some old stock that way. Uh, but the, yeah, the wording in the ad is sort of, it's just written as though you know what this game is and you're really excited that they're throwing it in with, uh, your copy of Temple of Apshe. So I don't know what the story is there, but But yeah. you better hurry. The offer is limited. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I don't suppose you can still do it. Uh, I don't know. I guess I could print this form out and send it in. Maybe I can still get it. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right, moving right along. So now this, this to me is the best article in in the magazine. Um, So the title is uh, Blind Pathfinder in Alaska. And, you know, for all the fun we make of people trying to, you know, find uses for these computers in 1980, uh, here's a story about, uh, you know, someone actually fulfilling the promise of computers, which is, you know, improving people's lives. And so this is a story of a woman who uh, lost her vision and she lost her job as a result. And she got a new job partially as a result of the Apple II and uh, some custom software that allowed her to do uh, this sort of office administration job, uh, you know, entirely with the Apple II and some speech synthesis and some other, you know, nifty, uh, nifty software tools. Uh, and it's, it's a, a fantastic read. Uh, so, I, yeah, I strongly recommend people give this, give this one a look. Good for Margot for making sure that, that this sort of thing uh, was, was given um, press coverage. Yeah, this is the sort of human story that uh, I think Soft Talk was really great at. Uh, that you know these computer magazines tended to be all about the technology, but uh, you know here's here's the human side of of you know how computers could could actually improve someone's life. You know, especially in the '80s when there wasn't accessibility technology. Uh, you know, there's a, a really sobering part of this article that's you know sort of par for the course for for 1980, but to uh, to our modern eyes is really alarming that uh, they talk about how. One of the most common causes of blindness is diabetes, and most uh, most diabetics lose their jobs or can't get new jobs as a result because because of the shortened lifespan. Apparently, employers didn't want to hire people with diabetes, and it was more that, according to this, than the blindness. Honestly, so wow. yeah, which is you know astonishingly you know unethical and horrifying to our modern ears, and now also illegal. But you know this was ten years before the Americans with Disabilities Act, so an employer could just be like, nope, you have diabetes, I'm not going to hire you. Um, mm. So. Uh, yeah, so in in that kind of environment, a computer being able to, being able to enable someone in in new ways is is really transformative. Yep. Next, we have uh, open discussions. Uh, these are letters from readers, and and um, uh, one of these is 
I think goes to what you were saying, Quinn, about uh, the the time limits on these contests. Somebody asks for how about a little more time on these contests? Remember that our post office has not yet entered the electronic age. In fact, I think our local branch is still in the Stone Age, and Soft Talk responds by saying there will be no more short deadlines. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can kind of see there are a little bit of growing pains here. They're getting used to the timescales of the U.S. Post Office in certain regions, certain parts of the country, and so on. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. And at the end of that, actually, there's an ad for uh, Dogfight, which I wanted to mention because that's another, that's one of those games like Lemonade or Lady Tut or, you know, one of those file crack games that just showed up everywhere. I must have had 30 copies of Dogfight. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what was neat for me is it's actually a really good game. And, but it was just sort of this throwaway because it was, you know, 50K or something and it was on every floppy. Uh, so I never really gave it much thought, but to see this ad for it and it makes you appreciate that, you know, a real company, uh, made this and, uh, you know, was, was trying to sell it and make money on it. And here I was just, you know, we were all just trading copies of of it around (laughs) like it was nothing. Uh, but yeah, it's actually a a really excellent game. Uh, so by the the company's called Microlab and, uh, of course I Googled their address and, uh, it's (laughs) a, uh, a house in uh, suburban uh, Chicago. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so there you go. Once again, this was another you know just dude in his in his house in suburbia. But uh, uh, all of their products. There's another microlab later uh, ad later in this magazine, and all their products are actually really quite good. So whoever this person was, they were uh, they they were doing some good stuff. Well, in fact, at the end of that uh, end of this dogfight uh, ad, they advertised that uh, you will receive. You can uh, receive a special achievement plaque if you're one of the first 10 pilots to reach 10,000 points in any of the auto modes. So they were definitely going the extra mile to please buy our stuff. Yeah, for sure. And they they did prep work for that, which is neat. The game had codes in it that if you reached certain levels, it would give you a secret code. And so the company would have proof that you had achieved it. So that's pretty neat. Uh, good, good forethought there. What's next? Uh, let's see. So we've got an, uh, the news section, like the industry news. Um and uh, the thing that caught my eye in this one is that they announced that uh, Apple is opening a new office in, or rather a new factory in Cork, Ireland uh, for manufacturing Apple IIs for European customers. Uh, of course, it's exciting news here because it's part of, you know, all Apple's huge, massive, rapid expansion, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and of course, that office is famous now uh, for being Apple's tax shelter. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the Cork office still exists and uh, they use it to avoid paying taxes on their many hundreds of billions in profits. So uh, uh, y- yay, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were um, at the time they, they had opened uh, a number of, I guess, distribution centers here in the States, uh, including in Boston, Charlotte. Carrollton, Texas, uh, and two more, uh, in, in California. There's uh, one in Sunnyvale and one down in, uh, Costa Mesa. So yeah, they were, they were expanding like crazy. Um, it says, uh, since January of, uh, 1979, there, there were 130 Apple employees or 130 employees, um, and 80,000 feet of total floor space. So, uh, since then, they had spread to uh, occupy 560,000 feet of floor space, and the corporate population was up to 580 employees, growing like crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of offices around the world for a company that's, uh, what, four years old at this point? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Uh, all right. So next we have a kind of this, so the theme of this issue is music on the Apple II, and, uh, which, of course, you know, our Atari and Commodore listeners are rolling their eyes at this point, but um, the music mm-hmm. uh, the music is all centered around add-on hardware, of course, uh, various uh, sound cards and MIDI controllers and synthesizer cards and things. 
but uh, I'll be honest, Mike, I get lost in most of these articles because it's pretty heavy with the music jargon, and I don't know anything about music, so uh, I kind of skimmed over these. Um, is there anything, any, you have any thoughts on all this? Um, well, I, I know that I like music. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, the Apple II, of course, uh, you know, the, the reputation uh, that it gained quickly was that, you know, the, the poor graphics in comparison to Atari and Commodore, Atari, and uh, <laughs> poor, poor sound. And so these were efforts, I think, to sort of make up for some of that. You know, there, there of course, was the, uh, in fact, earlier in the magazine, um, there was an ad for the, the new Alpha Centauri, uh, the MIDI interface, which I think we've talked about before, where you could, you know, go to your Apple dealer and, and see a hands-on demonstration now. Of course, you know, when one company gets into a field, a bunch of them do. And so it wasn't just ALF. It was, you know, they had their music synthesizer um, and then Mountain Hardware, they got into it. And uh, I guess there was a company called that I'm not familiar with called American Micro, but uh, like you, Quinn, I don't know that much about musical terms and, and kind of the 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 technical side of music and I know I just know that all of the stuff at the time was really expensive and so it wasn't something like that that a high schooler like me was going to have the mu- the money to just go out and buy. Yeah, I mean I will say it's interesting how much of this stuff was out there that I didn't know about. I did, had no idea how broad uh the market was for this uh add-on music composition and management hardware. For the Apple. So, uh, yeah, there's, these articles are basically a comparison of, you know, each of these companies has a package that's like uh, possibly includes a synthesizer and then includes some sort of MIDI or interface or controller board or even a synthesizer board. And then there's a software package that goes with it for composition. And so it's sort of a comparison of the strengths and weaknesses of all these packages. And yeah, it's very inside baseball. I mean, it's, you know, complaints about how this particular package represents eighth notes. Yeah, again, it it was very expensive. And and I think we were at this point, this was, you know, late 1980, we were probably a ways off from things like uh, the Mockingboard um, and tools where you could actually, where the the Apple II was the thing producing the music. This is a lot more about providing interfaces, computer interfaces to your instruments. So you could compose your music on the Apple and then play it on your um, on your keyboard, play it through your keyboard and, and save it. And, or you could, you could, you know, noodle around on your keyboard and, and have your software running on the Apple II to record the notes and things like that. So, um, I, yeah, this is well beyond most of what I know about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point, we're really, at this point in history, we're using the computer to take care of the bookkeeping side of music. So it's, you know, nowadays what we would call sequencing or tracking kinds of software. Um, so it's uh, in, and you know, MIDI control. Uh, but none of those terms are used in any of these articles, really, that I could see. So this is all still like nowadays, that kind of control of music is sort of standardized. But you know, at the time here, those concepts, you know, people had the idea that, oh, computers should be able to do this sort of bookkeeping side of music, but no one had really standardized things or given names to it, I guess, yet. Next, we have an ad for, a full-page ad for quality software, um, which was run uh, by uh, uh, Don Worth, who has been kind of sort of active recently in the Apple II community. He uh, he was the one who wrote the uh, the roguelike before there was rogue called Beneath Apple Manor. Mm-hmm. Um, he also wrote a bunch of other stuff um, and sold it as asteroids in space, um, which I guess is where you would expect to find them. Yeah. Um, you know, there's an astro apple uh, astrology 
uh, application. There's a linker software if you're into, into programming. And there's, there's the, yep, the beneath Apple matter, which you could get on cassette for 1495 or on diskette for 1995 and, and a few other things. Yeah, I like this ad because it's actually much more modern uh, than the other ads typically are. Uh, this is very much like you would see in a computer or video game magazine, you know, in the 90s where there's uh, actual screenshots of the software. I mean, nowadays, you know, you buy software based solely, or at least in the 90s when you still had magazines, uh, you bought software solely on, on the screenshots. And, uh, you know, the description was just sort of you skimmed it or whatever. But uh, so, yeah, the, he has actual screenshots of a couple of the games here. Um, so that's uh, that's pretty compelling. I mean, I would definitely buy that over a $1,000, you know, accounts receivable software package based on some description of it. Uh, of course, I wouldn't have bought the software accounts receivable anyway, but that's a whole <laughs> right. separate data point. Moving right along, uh, more music stuff. Uh, <laughs> Uh, again, another review of some music software. Um, but hiding in here is another one of my favorite uh, of these mystery software company ads from uh, something called Howard Soft, uh, short for Howard Software Services. And uh, the headline is for the serious Apple II user. And it's a series of packages. Uh, there's a tax preparer, a real estate analyzer, and a stock portfolio manager. Uh, again, all no doubt written in AppleSoft Basic. And doing the math on 1980s dollars, these would be somewhere in the range of $500 uh, for these packages. And the address uh, is a house in <laughs> suburban Los Angeles. Shocking. <laughs> Once again, I, I Google Street Viewed it. So, uh, yeah, again, sending hundreds of possibly thousands of dollars to some guy based on a text description. His name is probably Howard. Yes, I'm going to guess that that is... Uh, Probably how Howard Soft was coined, but uh, that's just speculation, folks. We do not know that, so don't quote us on that. Uh, one one thing, uh, real quick, about the the actual article in, in which that ad was planted uh, was kind of interesting. It, it, it's it's um, uh, talking about a, a a new computer language called Forte, and and the the language is actually was was written specifically to help uh, to to um, deal with music composition and, and instruments and, and things like that. So it, it's sort of, you know, you, you've seen a, you see a lot of hardware, obviously, and there's the applications that you could buy, like music construction uh, set and things like that. But this, um, this I think, took a, a different approach where if you were a, a more programming uh, mind, you could still maybe play with music. I, I don't know how, if this really hit the target that, that they were aiming for, but it looks like um, an interesting experiment nonetheless. Yeah, I actually didn't uh, realize that's what that was. Um, I don't know anything about it, but I can say that Forte is has to be the best possible name for a music composition related programming language. Uh, whoever came up with that, bravo! That's that's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> there's like three layers of pun there, and it's fantastic. Uh, all right, uh, moving right along. Um, let's see. I think we're basically into the. Uh, title cover article now, which is about a uh, pop synthesizer band called Utopia uh, and how they're using their Apple II. And I was not familiar with this band, but apparently their producer is quite the big deal. Uh, I worked with David Bowie and a bunch of other famous people. Todd Rundgren. Yeah. yeah so I wasn't familiar with these folks, but uh, they're uh, very kind of new wave 80s. Uh, one of the pictures, the guy's wearing a full yellow jumper with like a red sports jacket over it. It's the most 80s possible outfit. It's pretty fantastic. Uh, so bravo for him. Um, the meat of the article seems to be mainly the the main guy 
who's very excited about the potential of computers for music production and also for graphics, particularly with uh, TV production, broadcast uh, type of graphics. And he has gone so far as to add a lot of very expensive commercial and industrial hardware to his Apple II to make it capable of producing such things. And it's not clear how far he ever got with any of that, uh, but they show pictures of very fancy hardware and things and him using his Apple II. Uh, but uh, the main thing I got out of that was that this guy is going to be super excited in like five years when the Amiga comes out because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that is really what this guy wants. He's spending a lot of money trying to make his Apple II into an Amiga. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So, yeah, the, the article is called uh, Apple's Adventures in Utopia, and it's sort of a play on the um, uh, Utopia record label name, which was started by, by Todd Rundgren. Um, and I, I don't, don't, I'm not particularly – I don't know that much about Rundgren's music, but he's, I think, um, pretty famous for being early into the computer music uh, scene and had a lot to do with – um, I think he actually wrote the software for the Apple graphics tablet and, uh, did a, did a bunch of stuff like that. So yeah, he was an early visionary who was probably about mm, 10 years too, too old for this or, or, you know, 10 years earlier than he should have been. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, his heart was in the right place though. Right. Now <laughs> we have an ad for, um, <laughs> Uh, we can take you from Waterloo to the Super Bowl. Um, this are, these are uh, Strategic Simulations Incorporated's current offerings, and again, it's it's you know text descriptions of games with a sketch, hand, a hand drawing <laughs> sketch in the middle of half a guy who's half a uh, Napoleon and half a football player. <laughs> um, again, this is a they expect you know you're. I think there's sort of this unspoken agreement between producer and buyer that um, you know you're going to have to. Use your imagination in some cases <laughs> to to really to really get the full experience that we're trying to give you in these games. Yeah, my guess is that these games are a series of menus written in AppleSoft Basic uh, and a lot of stats. Is my yeah, guess. I have not played <laughs> played much of their stuff. I do know that uh, SSI was known before they got into computer gaming for their their uh, <clears throat> before their tabletop war gaming. Um, and later on, that's really what they turn to. I mean, there's a lot of like early on football stuff and attempts at, at other things that, that weren't as close, but yeah. 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 Really, uh, later on, for sure, SSI became a real player in, in computer gaming, especially once, you know, they acquired the AD&D license and so on. Things, things really went uh, well for them. They made a lot of great stuff, but uh, yeah, this early, I, I got to dig up some of these old pieces of software and see what they actually were because again, no screenshots, you know, very flowery descriptions uh, of how amazingly real everything is or whatever, but what are they? I mean, is it, is it a series of menus? Is it, you just, yeah, you really can't tell anything about these games. All right. So the next article that caught my eye was uh, one called the logical way uh, with a very uh, engineer looking uh, graph paper background. And uh, it's sort of, it's a neat kind of article because it's uh I don't know if this is a regular column or what, but this particular article is about using the Supertext uh, word processor as a form of simple database. And uh, just it, it's a, a lot of complicated language explaining all this, but it boils down to putting a bunch of pieces of information all on their own line and then using find to jump around uh, in that list. And which sounds comically primitive today, but uh, I think that is kind of actually a big deal. Um, Back then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we take find and uh, finding in documents for granted every single window and every single 
program and every single thing we use has a find, but uh, that was a big deal. And, you know, the, the notion that you could just use a simple word processor for more than it was intended to just because of that simple feature, I think is kind of neat. It also brings to mind the uh, uh, the Canon Cat uh, or yeah, um, yeah. what was the Apple II version of it? What was it called again? The uh, um, Swift? Yes, Swift. Where you, the Swift card, yes, where you had to like cut your space bar in half or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a very similar kind of approach. It's like find is such a powerful concept that we can actually build an entire computing system around that really, uh, which, you know, we've kind of come full circle back to with, you know, Google Desktop and such things. Yeah, we don't we don't spend a lot of time focusing on it on this podcast because it, it you know the the end result was more Macish, um, but the Canon Cat was actually a, a fascinating experiment. Um, uh, Jeff Raskin, I think, kicked that off, and and uh, you know there were some early uh, sniffing around in in what would, you know what would be similar to hypertext and mm-hmm. and uh, things like that. So um, and you know when Apple didn't want to build his machine, I think he took it to Canon and that's why it ended up the Canon cat and not Apple or something like that. But yeah, they're very hard to find these days, but I know that Mike, uh, will Eagles for a while sold, um, the, the, the plug-in card that you could put in your Apple II and turn it into one of these things. Yeah, it is a really powerful concept, honestly. And it is pretty visionary for them to have seen that way back then. Uh, and like I say, we've come back to that, you know, the idea that if search is powerful enough and good enough, it can replace everything, basically, uh, all other forms of navigation can be replaced with that. And, you know, we're basically there with Spotlight and, and Google Desktop and those types of technologies where, you know, nowadays, they don't expect you to sort organize your files anymore or anything, you're just expected to drop everything in a giant pile and have a really good search function for it. Uh, which, you know, works if your search is fast enough and, uh, you know, accurate enough. I think uh, a while back, Microsoft even tried to build an operating system based on a database and, and your entire um, interface, you know, was was done through search and you didn't have a, a standard file structure as we understand it today. I don't think they managed to pull that off, but it's interesting to see how far it's come and where we're kind of headed yeah, yeah, Apple is certainly pushing us in that direction now. You know, your default whenever you open a Finder window is this thing called All My Files, and you're uh, you're just expected that. to search in that, and that actually drives me crazy because it, there it's not quite good enough to use that way. But uh, you know, the search is still a little slow. But uh, you know, they're definitely yeah, it's definitely clear that's where we're headed anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so Jeff Raskin was right. Yeah. Okay. Next up, we have the uh, they're the next in their exec. Uh, series where they profile a, a company or person. Um, and this, of course, in keeping with the music theme is with Mountain, the, uh, the hardware computer or the hardware company. I know that they didn't just do the music stuff. Um, they had like, you know, the clock card and there was a, something called the CPS card and a few other things. But I, I, I know that they were big into, into music and sound on the Apple too. Yeah. There's a nice picture of their, uh, uh, offices there, which, uh, Looks like an actual office. It's hard to tell. It's behind trees, but uh, there's there's a big sign out front, though. It looks like it might be someone's house, but then there's also a big sign out front that says Mountain Computer uh, Incorporated. So yeah, I actually googled that address um, a long time ago. I was looking around for I don't know, something to do, probably on a Friday afternoon at work. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's this this actually is a little uh, um, industrial complex um, in kind of a mountain setting. So okay, um, yep, that's. That's accurate in this case. Nice. It's not just some guy's basement. It might have started there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of nice pictures actually there of the, the, the management and then their offices and stuff. Ooh, a drive cleaning kit. <laughs> yes. Got to have one of those. 
Uh, another full-page ad from Microlab for something else called the Data Factory, uh, which I guess is a database. Um, yeah, again, this is a case of, you know, we'll, we'll use a bunch of vague terms so you don't really know <laughs> what's going on here. But Yeah, um, they make some bold claims about how many levels of of subtotals they support and things about sizes of names and, I don't know. <laughs> sales records. Yeah, the... Yeah, the Things that they brag about database software is a little strange. Uh, available for an introductory price of $100. Yes, that's, uh, that's a bargain. It's, it's about $800 today, maybe $700, something like that. And moving right along now, we've got uh, Roger Wagner's assembly lines, everyone's uh, probably favorite column uh, in hindsight. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And we all are all f- uh, fondly uh, revisiting these articles, of course, through Chris Torrance's excellent re-edit of these articles. And uh, yeah, this is another good one. So this is part two uh, of the original Roger Wagner assembly lines. Still a great read. Everyone's Guide to Machine Language, part two. He's still going through the uh, the very basics, um, but it um, um, it's well written and it's easy to understand. And uh, you know, of course, if you are looking to learn assembly language, I would run out and buy Chris's book. And then if you want to, you can come see the article, the original articles uh, here in Soft Talk. For sure. I mean, yeah, if you want to learn assembly language nowadays on the Apple II. Uh, these articles still stand as the single best way to do it. I mean, yeah, that you can read that Chris Torrance's book start to finish and learn Apple II assembly language from zero to I'm making an arcade game in iOS graphics. It's it's really that good. Uh, so yeah, it's it's the book I wish I had had 30 years ago for sure. Chris's attempts to learn assembly language sort of were what started this whole thing to to get it republished. So yeah. I could be wrong there, but. Um, we have an ad for uh, content, all continental. Um, let's see. Nope, it's an ad for continental software, and uh, they they sell things like LA Land Monopoly and the Mailroom. Exciting. Um, this is uh, is this? Did you happen to Google this address? Uh, I did not. Did you skip over the Wizard and Princess ad? Oh, I did. Yeah. yeah right. So uh, that was I wanted to call that out. The Wizard and the Princess High Res Adventure Number Two from uh, Online Systems, soon to become Sierra. And, uh, of course, their first game was Mystery House. And uh, what strikes me about this game is, as we'll see later, it's uh, the top seller, I believe, at the moment is Point in History. Uh, and uh, it's apparently a really big deal. Uh, I really didn't like this game. <laughs> I, I distinctly remember having this game, and I was, it, I was pretty excited about it because of all the graphics. Uh, but it's so it's it's the graphics magician era. So it's a bunch of screens drawn by graphics magician uh, stored in this kind of vector format, which is how they're uh, able to get so many uh, in there. Um, and it's you know it's a two word guess the verb text adventure type of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I I really didn't care for it, uh, and I never <laughs> quite understood what the appeal of these games was, uh, why they were so popular. But uh, maybe it was just lack of competition. Yeah, this was not um, a title that I was interested in. Uh, no offense to the many people who no doubt worked very hard on it, but uh, yeah, it was... Or if you liked it, we're, you know, yeah. <laughs> saying anything about your taste in Apple Series. Yes. Uh, so anyway, you were talking about, uh, yes, the uh, the American flag ad. Is that yeah, what you're talking about there? <laughs> yes. it's This, this thing is, as, uh, as a border, they have a bunch of American flags. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called Revolutionary Programs from Continental Software. And it's things like LA Land Monopoly. Um it apparently has high-res graphics. We don't know that because there are no pictures. Um, <laughs> yes. But it is thoroughly tested, written by professionals, uh, and well-documented. So, mm. um, And it's, uh, it is an address in 
uh, Rancho Palos Verdes in uh, in Southern California. Uh, I guarantee you that's a house. Yeah, that. Yeah, I actually think I might recognize roughly where that is. <laughs> so I kind of know that area. <laughs> so, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. My favorite uh, ad. Uh, portion of this ad is uh, 3D Space Battle, uh, a high-resolution three-dimensional space game where the player searches an alien ship using the onboard scanners. Uh, that could be anything. I mean, I, I have <laughs> no idea what that game might look like or whether it's worth $30 or what. Uh, I have no idea. Well, and the other, the, actually, the other part of that same package is uh, 48K Trek, which is, uh, I guarantee you, uh, just a copy of the uh, Unix Star Trek game that went around in the 70s. Uh, you, you begin to you begin to understand why why these days Paramount like sues everybody that uses the name Trek because yeah. on the at least on the Apple II there were dozens of and dozens and dozens of Star Trek clones, mm-hmm. and I guarantee you that that Paramount never got a penny from that. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty funny that, that that classic Unix game with the grid for the, you know, with the little Klingons and you're moving the little Enterprise around. It's amazing that how many people just repackaged and sold that game for profit. Next, we have a trade talk, um, which is, you know, industry business talk. Uh, Thomas J. Lawrence has been appointed general manager of Apple's European operations. Congratulations, Thomas. Um, most of that looks like pretty boring Uh Executives shuffling around, things like that. Um, I don't see any companies that collapsed or took over any others. Um, here's an ad for Mystery House uh, High Res Adventure Number One. We were just mm-hmm. talking about Number Two, yeah. And it's it's sort of it, it strikes me as we were talking about it, especially how how important the graphics were to this. That none of these ads actually have screenshots of the graphics. Now I don't know if that was because it was expensive to provide those at the time or or what, but this just has like a. And admittedly, a very well done sketch of a spooky house um, and a, a dead tree. But yeah, none of these have screenshots. Yeah, I always wonder about that too. I mean, it was certainly would have been difficult to get screenshots, uh, actual real ones, because of course we didn't have you know any kind of easy way to go digital to analog and back again in those days. So it would have been difficult. But uh, and it was a big deal that these games had high res graphics at all. So. You know, you'd think they'd want to show that off if they could. On the other hand, maybe they were afraid the primitiveness of the graphics would scare people away, or I don't know. Because, uh, I mean, by all accounts, Mystery House was a pretty good game. Uh, but, you know, the graphics were definitely very simple. Uh, but, um, yeah, that doesn't mean it wasn't fun. And it was certainly, like I say, it was a big deal that there was graphics at all. So, yeah, I don't know what the story is, why they don't have more screenshots. Huh. All right. Well, next we have a... Uh... An article called Direct Line to Apple Music, the Ivory Keyboard, um, and it's more music talk. I think this is about the Office Centauri. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, very detailed uh, <laughs> details of combining your synthesizer with your Apple II. Um, the one thing I will call out is halfway through this article, there's uh, an ad for the Eaton 7000 personal computer printer. And this is one of those, uh, so we have this, these whole categories of generic printers like we were talking about. There's this other whole subcategory of generic receipt printers. And there seems to have oh, been yeah. all these companies in the 70s and 80s that made receipt printers and decided that home computer makers needed these things, or home computer uh, users. So uh, I'm fascinated by all these companies trying to sell me repeat receipt printers in these <laughs> magazines. I mean, I knew a lot of computer users uh, in, in those days, and I don't know anybody who had or wanted a receipt printer. Um, but, you know, they're marketed as easy to use and prints really fast. And But, you know, it prints a, a four-inch wide little thing uh, with on thermal paper. And unless you're running a, a store, I don't know why you would want such a thing. Yeah, very odd. Yeah, but any anyway, the weirdest things fascinate me. 
Uh, okay, moving right along. Uh, so there's some great pictures next of uh, the Utopia band in their uh, 80s new wave uh, synthesizer glory. Um, yeah, gotta love that hair. <laughs> oh, we do have an ad here real quick. Uh, another online systems ad. This one's for the high-res graphics for the Apple II Paddle Graphics tablet graphics system, which does have screenshots. So hmm. I guess I wanted to show you what you could do with that software, but... Uh, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I just jumped back to where you were, the paddle graphics. Yeah. So there's actual screenshots in there. So yeah, that's the, and they look nice too. Like I would buy, I would buy that software based on that. Uh, and I think that's their software, right? That they, they use to build their games too, right? Cause they had come up with, that was their whole shtick is that they came up with a, their own vector, vector graphics kind of format that was very similar in look to, to what would become graphics magician, uh, later on that then Scott Adams esque games would all be, uh, based on, but, uh, yeah, that's that is neat to see some screenshots there. So yeah, that certainly I think helps sell the product. We do have an ad for Forte, the music language. That article earlier that was talking about the the language written for musicians. There's an ad um, here at the bottom, sold through Soft Tape for twenty nine dollars on disc or uh, or thirty dollars on disc, twenty dollars on cassette. Uh, more than fifty commands available. So um, definitely a, a neat idea. Uh, and then let's see, we got a full page ad here for uh, the ALF company that we were talking about earlier that had their article about them. And uh, it's, a, it's a very dramatic ad with a Apple II made into a guitar with attachments and so on. Um, and uh, yeah, it's <laughs> I, I still find it such a, a strange image to me, the, all these associations with the Apple II and music, because I just never make, to me, the Apple II was just never about audio <laughs> you know that just, right. <laughs> it was not good at that we all recognize that that was not its thing uh but uh here's yeah all these really strong associations um and now we have their uh soft talks bestseller lists and these were very uh, these are a very popular thing um at least you know all my friends talked about them and and you know you I've heard here on other podcasts people talking about the top thirty, you know, that Soft Talk had, whether it was the games or the, or the. I think this is just this particular month is just the top thirty in general. Of course, number one is Visicalc, and number two is High Res Adventure. Number two, number three is uh, Bill Budge's 3D graphic system. Uh, down the list, Flight Simulator, Apple Plot, Sargon, et cetera, et cetera. All the all the. Um, familiar titles that, that we all love and sometimes loathe. Yeah. Yeah. The two things that stuck out to me on this list are that Bill Budge is in there twice. So uh, he's kicking butt at this point. Good for him. Uh, and uh, Sargon 2. Uh, I didn't realize Sargon 2 was that old. Uh, I played a lot of it. And the fact that it was already in the top 30 list in 1980 means it's been out. So this must have come out in 79 or something. Uh, must be. Yep. Uh, so that, yeah, I had no idea Sargon 2 was that old. It's still a great Apple II chess game. I mean, it's it might, oh, yeah. it might be the high watermark for, for Apple II chess. So I had a, a French teacher back in school who was obsessed with it. He was really, really into chess. And uh, so I brought that in to show him one day and because he didn't know anything about computers. And we had an Apple II in the back of the French room. And uh, when he learned, when he discovered, like, because it was, it, it played really well. So when he found out that there was this chess, uh, this computer chess thing that could beat him, then he was so <laughs> excited because now he had this like way that he could keep getting better without having to go to tournaments or whatever and try and find <laughs> people to play with. So, uh, yeah, that was my own little personal memory of Sargon too. I keep playing my students and they suck. <laughs> yeah, these these ten year olds are all terrible at chess. <laughs> Get them out of here. Uh, and we'll wrap up this month with, uh, an ad for PFS software. Who needs it? You do. <laughs> and, um, finally, uh, an ad, uh, for the, uh, Hayes Micro Modem 2, the perfect fit for your Apple II computer. 
Yeah, I have two quick thoughts on both of these, actually. Uh, PFS, actually, uh, database software was actually really neat. Um, It was kind of ahead of its time. It was a bit like DBase in that you could create the forms yourself um, and then control the layout and how the different fields influenced each other and stuff. It wasn't a relational database, but you could, you know, it it had a really nice form builder. And so I actually played with that a fair bit. Uh, We had a store-bought copy of that. I forget why. Presumably, my father bought it because it seemed like important software or something, but we never used it for anything serious, but I would periodically put all my mom's recipes into it and such. And uh, I always sort of weirdly enjoyed that just because it was a really clever interface to use. So anyway, that was PFS. Um, and the the Haze modem ad I like because I didn't realize that they had this modem that was two pieces. There's the interface card in the machine and then this microcoupler portion portion that's ex- external. And the microcoupler, if I understand reading this ad correctly, it sounds like the external microcoupler is the actual modem. And this the card is basically a serial card. Um, yes, I think so. But I think that's kind of neat because that's actually really clever. And no doubt they made different cards for different computers. And so they could sell this microcouplers, the same unit to everybody, and then just sell different interface types of things for, you know, maybe cards for Apple IIs or joystick port adapters for VIC-20s or whatever, and, you know, everybody could use the same modem. So I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, it says uh, one part uh, includes the printed circuit board, which holds the micromodem 2, the ROM firmware, and the serial interface, and plugs directly into the Apple II, providing the functions of the serial interface card plus programmable auto-dial and auto-answer. Um, and the other part is the uh, microcoupler, which connects the board and Apple II to a telephone line. So that thing handles the dial tone and does the actual dialing of the numbers, answers, and uh, hangs up, that sort of thing. Yeah, yep. Um, oh, and one thing about uh, PFS, I was thinking about that as you were talking. First, it's, this is a nice demonstration of what you were talking about earlier, but, you know, with those ads that it's, it's, we know that they're selling general accounting software, but there's no description really of what it actually is. Whereas this tells you exactly what it, what they're talking about. PFS software is different and, and, uh, it is a personal filing system that lets you communicate with a computer a little bit general, but then it gets into the, to the details. And I think that's kind of, you know, uh, the companies who could advertise this way probably were more successful selling their products. Yeah, for um, sure. Right? Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful ad. There's a full color picture. There's a picture of the software running on an Apple II, so you can see what it looks like. You know, there's really nice uh, formatting of the text around the Apple II. I mean, it's yeah, it's beautifully laid out. This whole ad. So PFS was published by Software Publishing Corporation. I think later on they became like PFS Incorporated or something. But I think they were one of the companies that paid attention to uh, when their software was cracked because I remember there were um, a bunch of different versions like a PFS Write and things like that that uh, if you flip through the pages of Computers Magazine, um, like, you know, this crack worked last month and it doesn't work on what's out there now. Oh, interesting. So they they, they morphed their copy protection over time. Oh, that's clever. Okay, well, that's a um, soft talk for this month. Let's yeah. what we got next. So, uh, well, so yeah, and actually, you know, we've just been, we've only done this segment a couple of times now, but we are curious if people are enjoying it. So, uh, you know, feel free to, to write in and, and let us know. Uh, feedback at open-apple.net and let us know if we should keep doing this. I mean, it's certainly fun for us because uh, it's fun to read through these magazines. And, you know, as, as we get further in here, we'll probably have to start 
uh, skipping around more because, you know, these first two, two, three issues were less than 50 pages, but, you know, they don't stay that small for very long. So obviously we're not going to, very, very long. yeah, we're not going to go page by page through, through hundreds of, of pages of the later issues. But, um, you know, yeah, let us know if you, if you like this or if you think it's dumb or, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> uh, so uh, speaking of letting us know, uh, we got some feedback. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. All right. uh, First email I've got here is from a listener, Steve, and he writes in to say, uh, show number 30 with Glenda the Adam Adams uh, was up to your usual level of excellence. Thank you. Uh, Well, thank you very much. Uh, We really enjoyed talking to Glenda. That was fun. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. We uh, we jumped at that opportunity and uh, deferred our usual year-end show uh, to, to talk to the Adam. That was great. Uh, and then he goes on to say, I was drinking eggnog and almost spit it out when she mentioned a New, a New Jersey kid acquainted from the pirating scene, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, the, you need to come on our show. Yes, we're we're starting to to pull threads out of this web here. We're see, Explain, sir. See where they go. Okay, uh, let's see. Moving right along, uh, listener Tony uh, often writes us uh, here at the podcast and has written to say. Uh, oh, uh, John Romero has a new uh, web page up about one of his uh, very early Apple II products uh, from 1982. Uh, called Alien Attack, and uh, it's uh, yeah, quite a good, quite a good little game. I think I remember playing this, but I don't remember for sure. Uh, so, oh, apparently it was the first in a series of five. So anyway, he's got a very nice uh, write up about it here. There's video footage of it and uh, screenshots and kind of uh, a lot of talk about his design process and what he was thinking when he did certain things and some of the challenges he had with. Uh, uh, you know, losing data, and there's even some concept art in here. So yeah, this is a really great article. Uh, so if you're interested in John Romero's history and uh, his uh, early Apple II stuff, it is a fantastic read. Awesome. Uh, let's see. Next uh, in the email box, we've got, um, I'm going to say listener Mikai. I apologize if I'm mangling that. Uh, looks Dutch. Uh, hello, Quinn and Mike. For a little while, I've been listening to your podcast, and I really enjoy the dynamic topics and tech talk so far. Thank you very much. For the record, I have never owned an Apple product ever. We wow. well, we won't hold that against you. Uh, I have touched various Apple II machines, but unfortunately, these were powered off uh, in a uh, local computer museum, and he links to the Spell Computer Museum in uh, the Netherlands. So we can link to that in the show notes. Uh, Having used the C64 quite a bit around 1990 for programming, mainly demos and visual effects, I can appreciate anything 6502, and for that matter, anything simple enough to wrap my head around. The Apple II would fit that category fine, I think. And you are correct, sir. Uh, He says, I recently regained interest in computers from the 80s and started programming the C64 again. Hope this doesn't earn me a ban. Keep up the good work. (laughs) Kind regards. Uh, Nope. Uh, Banning was uh, Mike's thing from no quarter. Uh, We are so far ban-free on open Apple as far as I know. Yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, all right, so thank you. Well, maybe if you're an Atari user, but... Yeah, well, Atari. Name Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good, we got our Kevin Savitz reference in. All yes, right. Angel, there you go. An angel got its wings. Uh, moving right along, listener Jeremy writes in to say, uh, for your show, thanks for the show, keep up the good work, love the show, but I don't love the magazine reading. <laughs> so that's fair. Uh, you know, it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, um, but uh, yeah, do let us know if we can get a sense of 
whether most people like it, then maybe we'll keep doing it. Uh, who knows? Or maybe we'll just keep doing it anyway because it's our podcast and you know, <laughs> we're going to do what we want. As far as we know, nobody listens to this thing. So we're just That's right. talking into the void here. Uh, all right. Next up, listener Dave says, I love the podcast. I think the Apple II is cool, although my retro computers of choice are the Ohio Scientific. Oh, that's an obscure oh, well, one. OSI, yeah. yeah. And old S100 machines and old HP desktop calculators. Wow. Uh, running basic and disk drives controlling lab equipment over HPIB. Uh, you, sir, should listen to the Floppy Days podcast. He's got a Indeed. very extensive uh, series on the uh, HPs and uh, some of the early desktops they did, the HP 85 and some of that kind of stuff, uh, which was very educational for me because I have an HP 48 that I love and I, I like HP calculators, uh, but I had no idea that they made calculators that were like proto computers. They had little screens and disk drives and it's crazy that it's like they never quite made the leap to computer, but they yeah. <laughs> they, they walked right up to that line. <laughs> like, let's see how far we can take a calculator before it becomes a computer. Uh, that's the HP 85. Um, all right. He goes on to say, I think I have a modern day Apple II sighting. Oh, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which we talked about. Okay, good. All right. Well, thanks for that uh, information, Dave. Uh, let's see. And that's all I've got in the email box. Do you have anything else for us, Mike? Yes, I do have my uh, my usual apology that I need to issue. <laughs> oh, yes, it's uh, our, our regular apology to uh, Call Apple. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the apology segment to Call Apple. Um, this, this, this month, uh, again, was my fault. Uh, we had recently talked uh, about they had brought the um, uh, Call Apple magazine back, and you could, if you subscribe to, if you were a, a, a member at Call Apple, you could uh, get the digital, uh, the PDF issue for free and, and um, I think I had mentioned that, you know, they had put one out a while back and then, um, uh, it, it's been a while since they, they'd released the next one. And, and I, I thought I had read somewhere that it was because of negative reviews. Well, it turns out that that's not true at all. Um, they were just taking time to get it right. And so I apologize. I did not certainly mean to imply that the product was substandard or anything like that. It's a great magazine. You should, should go read it now. And Bill and, and, um, Brian, I, I apologize. <laughs> yes. Doing great work over there. Call Apple. And I think at this point we should just add a call Apple apology segment and a, an apology segment for all of the Australian listeners. Who Indeed. We yep. continue to mangle all information related to those two topics. So <laughs> uh, once again, our research department has been round up and shot. They're terrible. I don't, I don't know why we keep – where are we getting these people? I don't, I don't understand. Well, it's the same group of people. We just you know, rehire them. Yeah, time, yeah. So. I went down there once and it was just cats. The room was all cats. Like what – who, who's hiring these people? I don't know. Anyway. Uh, all right. Well, if they, I guess we get, get what we pay for. Yeah, we do. We are, we are getting what we pay for uh, down there in the research department. And so are you, dear listeners. <laughs> That's right. Keep that in mind when, when you're thinking how much how, how terrible we are at this. <laughs> Actually, don't because we want you to contribute to uh, our Patreon. Yes. Yes, that we do. Uh, wow, that was that was a terrible timing to ask for money. But yes, please contribute to our Patreon. Uh, as we've said before, uh, the cost of uh, the, there are costs to running the show. Uh, we do we pay for hosting and we pay for bandwidth, and you know we want a service that keeps the the quality high and uh, provides unlimited back catalog, which we currently have. So that costs us some money. So um, we will link to the Patreon in the show notes and uh, help us out. Uh, all right, that's all I've got, Mike. Any closing thoughts? No, I think uh, I think that's uh, it for this month. Thank you once again, uh, Quinn, and uh, we look forward to seeing everyone next month. Yes, uh, thanks for listening, and we will see you all in March. Bye, everybody.
Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net.